Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It was the great church reformer John Calvin who said of this passage, it is a living portrait of the church. But we are probably more likely to say something like this. It's a church selfie. It's a selfie of the first Christians meeting together in the New Testament. These people had experienced something that was uncommon. The day of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They had seen the tongues of fire resting on each one. The Holy Spirit giving gifts to men and women to speak in languages they did not know so that others could hear. A day when Jews from throughout the Mediterranean basin had gathered for the day of Pentecost, a feast for them. And they heard in their own tongues the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this was a selfie of what happened afterwards. Peter spoke a great sermon. It's recorded in Acts. And at the end of that, it says that 3,000 people came to faith or were added to the church. An amazing, an amazing day. The church experienced something that was uncommon. This church, this gathering together of people, this selfie that we're given in Acts chapter two shows us what it was like. I wonder what you'd call a church like that today. A good name probably would be the first church of Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem, it was the first church. It used to be names of churches were that easy, but not anymore. Have you noticed how church names have changed? It used to be you'd go into a town and you might find First Baptist Church because it was the First Baptist Church in the town. Or Second Presbyterian because there are two of them. There's a first one and a second one. Or you come to Williamsburg and you find a Williamsburg Lutheran Church named after the city in which you find it. But these days, church names are different. Some of the most popular names of churches in America the last five years have been this. Resonate, Elevate, The Journey, Tapestry, Dynamic, Epic, or one of my favorites, The Salvage Yard. <laughs> Can you imagine getting up in the morning, getting your family together, going out to get in the car, your neighbors next door is outside preparing to cut the grass, and yells over, hey, where are you guys going this early on a Sunday morning? We're going to the salvage yard. Really? Well, I've also heard the story of another church that was experiencing some challenge, and sometimes churches do that. It's, it's called, this church was called Harmony Church, but there wasn't much harmony. And there was a split in the church, and the splinter group that left the church decided to get a new name, and they decided to call themselves Greater Harmony Church. <laughs> I have my doubts about that. So what is it about the church that Luke 
gives us a selfie of in Acts chapter two. What is it about it that makes it so special? Maybe if you could go back in time and ask them that, maybe if you could get a ride on a silver DeLorean with Marty McFly and go back and ask someone, what makes it so special here? What would they say? My guess is they'd say something about the fact that they all experienced together life transformation as they came to know Jesus Christ. That was the deciding factor in their life. It changed everything. Well, it sure did grow fast. We know that about this church. In Acts chapter one, we start with 120 disciples of Jesus who are around and waiting and watching him ascend to heaven. And before another chapter is done, we have 3,000 added to their number. Just amazing growth. Just a remarkable thing. Now, many of those people who came to faith on the day of Pentecost because they were Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem from other places, many of them went home the next day or the next week, and they took the gospel with them. So what was the church like in Jerusalem, this church that began to meet in each other's homes? We don't know how many. Some have said 200, some 300, maybe even 500 spread throughout the city of Jerusalem, meeting together in their homes and doing what they are learning to do together as the church. But it looked different than anything else. It wasn't like exactly going to temple. It wasn't exactly like synagogue. This was a new kind of creation. Jesus had said that would happen. He told a parable about new wine and old wineskins and said, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. It'll burst these skins, you have to have a new structure. And he was comparing what would happen when the kingdom of God would come on earth. The new structure is what this church selfie is. It's a structure that God developed, that Jesus had promised that he was going to grow in the world. A structure that we call the church, that would be the place where the Holy Spirit would be transforming people's lives and would make them into a community that could even withstand persecution and stick together and take the gospel to the very ends of the world. So what is it that they were committed to? That's what Luke wants us to see in, in Acts 2.42. He told us, tells us there were four things that they were devoted to. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. So I want to unpack a little bit those four things that the earliest church was devoted to. First, the apostles' teaching. We have to remember that the first believers in the New Testament, those followers of Jesus who began to be the church, they didn't have a New Testament. They didn't carry around Old Testament with them. They didn't have Christian resources and books. They didn't have even the little devotional, Our Daily Bread. In fact, most of them most likely couldn't even read. They were dependent on the apostles' teaching to know what it is they were supposed to believe and what it is they were supposed to do. And they had questions. Oh, I'm sure they had questions, not, not just a few. Like, what is it we believe now? We were Jews, but now we're, we're followers of Jesus. What is it we really have to believe about him? And how are we supposed to live? What does a God-honoring life look like as a follower of Jesus? Is it different than being just a Jew? They were completely dependent on the teaching of the apostles to get answers to those kinds of questions. So they got their theology, their doctrine, their lifestyle questions answered by the apostles' teaching. And it would come directly from men like Peter and Paul and James that they would get these questions answered. 
It's no wonder that by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, and there is the potential of division in this new thing called the church, because there are some people who aren't being served as well as others at the daily distribution for the widows, and it comes to the attention of the apostles that something needs to be done or there'll be division in this thing called the church. And the apostles respond by saying, it is not right for us to give up preaching the word of God and prayer to serve tables. They knew that what they were saying, the word of God revealed through them, was the very meat of what the church needed to eat. It was the very milk that would sustain them. They had to keep doing what they were doing. And as they did it, other questions arose, no doubt. Like, what's going to happen if other people begin to enter this thing called the church? Other people being Gentiles, non-Jews. What do we do with them? What happens when we go to the temple? Do we still need ritual cleansings? Should we still go to animal sacrifices? What about circumcision? What about food laws? Are there still unclean foods? Can we eat barbecue? Can we go to Pierce's after church? These are the kind of questions that were real for them. Where were they going to get the answers? They depended on the apostles to give them the answers to their questions. And so they were devoted to their teaching. And it's no wonder that if you've ever asked, why is it that a church like Williamsburg Community Chapel is so dependent and devoted to the word of God? Why is it that we make sure it's preached regularly in the, the main worship room and that it's taught appropriately in the student ministry room and that it's the center of our curriculum for children's ministry? Why would we have a resource center that's stocked with Bibles and resources to help us understand the Bible? Well, it's because this is the equivalent for us of the apostles' teaching. This is where we find it. This is the authoritative word from God for us. We need to be committed to it. Every church throughout the ages has needed to be committed to God's revelation, the apostles' teaching, his very word. But we live in a culture that's not committed to it. Certainly not committed to this word, not committed to many words. We live in a culture that finds its place of meaning and satisfaction and authority to be not any word, but to be feelings. Feelings become the final authority for most people in our culture at large. Feelings drive what we consider to be true. Feelings drive what we consider to be most important. We make our decisions based not on what we find in God's word, but what we feel at any given time. And we might think, well, that's a new problem, but it's not. 500 years ago, another great church reformer, Martin Luther, faced the same challenge with Christians in his day. And he wrote a little poem, one of the stanzas of which says this, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant, my security, is the word of God. Naught else is worth believing. You see, devotion to God's revelation through the apostles was a mark or a distinguishing feature of the life of the early church. If you take a selfie of that early church like we have in Acts 2, that's right there. Secondly, they were devoted not only to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted, devoted to the fellowship. Notice it's not just devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. Well, fellowship in many of our minds is what happens when we get free coffee and donuts after church in the foyer. We have fellowship. We hang out. We talk. And that's kind of a fellowship. But that's not the word that Luke uses. He uses a technical term in the Greek one that most of you probably have heard, it's koinonia. 
And it simply means to share all things, to share all things in common. So Luke expands on what that would look like in this church selfie in verses 44 and 45 of Acts chapter 2 when he says, And those who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. He expands a little bit later in chapter 4, verse 32, by writing this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now we first read that or hear it and we think, well, that sounds almost like communism, at least socialism, or or at minimum, communalism. And it's really not any of those isms. It's actually more radical than that. It's people voluntarily giving up what was theirs to help someone else. Or to put it another way, it was people who were no longer owned by what they owned. But they shared it willingly. We know they still had things. They didn't have to give it all up. This wasn't like the the community, the Essenes, a first century community, out near Qumran, near the Dead Sea in Israel, where to join that community, the community of the Essenes, you had to give up everything that was yours. It isn't even quite like the modern-day group, the Hutterites, who descended from the Amish, who experienced communal life together, and there are Hutterites in our country, in Montana, and South Dakota, and there's more in Canada. They have in their bylaws that all members who will be of the colony are provided for equally and no assets are to be kept for personal gain. That's a requirement to be in the Hutterites. You have to share everything. You can't own anything. Although if you go to their website and look at their blog, someone does ask the question, do you guys share toothbrushes too? And the answer, no, come on, really? (laughs) We all have our own personal items. Well, you see, the early church wasn't required to do this. They still met in each other's homes. They owned homes to meet in. But some of them would sell their homes to give the money to the poor. See, it was way radical. This discipleship, this following Jesus who had changed their lives, who had transformed everything. For them, fellowship wasn't just coffee and muffins. Fellowship was devotion to one another. It was being unified because they had become members of the same family the family of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So through thick and thin, they learn to love one another. And if we read through the the rest of the book of Acts, and then, of course, through the epistles, we find there are times when that's pretty hard to do. So apostles like Paul have to keep telling them over again, over and over again, this is what it's like to love one another. And one of the big things about loving one another, of course, is learning to forgive one another. So my guess is that being devoted to the fellowship in the first century in the church was a lot like being devoted to the chapel in Williamsburg. You got to learn to live together and to love one another and to forgive one another. Because Jesus was building something in the church. He's still doing it. And what he's building in part is something that's going to last, that's going to withstand whatever comes its way. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So these disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem in the first century, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and then thirdly, to the breaking of bread. And in this passage, we have this phrase, breaking bread, twice, both in verse 42 and then again in verse 46. Notice the first occurrence 
is put this way, to the breaking of bread. Definite article there. Second is this, verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Scholars think about this and say, well, maybe there's two kinds of things going on here. The breaking of bread, maybe that refers to the Lord's table, communion, like we will share in just a little while. And maybe the breaking of bread in their homes refers, refers more to community life, potlucks together, what we do when we meet together to eat. Or maybe they both refer to both. No one's quite sure, but this much is sure that both are very important for the life of the church. Communion given to us as a sacrament that we share together. They did the same thing in Jerusalem in the first church. Being together to share meals and to share all that goes with that was important as well. Because when you gather together to have a meal with somebody, it's usually more than just sitting down and eating. Although more and more these days, you can go to a restaurant and see people sitting at a table and they're all looking at their phones. They might as well be sitting at separate tables. Wouldn't matter. But in the first century church, when they met, they shared their life. And my guess is they shared their questions and their dreams and their challenges and their struggles. And they did it together because they were together. But eating and meeting together has been a part of the church for 2,000 years. My mother-in-law, who would who lived with us at the end of her life, watching our family go to church for yet another potluck supper would all would say something like this. You guys are always going to meetings and eatings. And I think the reason she said is, was she wanted to go to the eatings part at least because it is good. You know, there's something about being united together, a unity, that breaking of bread, both in our homes or at restaurants or at church fellowship halls, and then the breaking of bread at the communion table that draws us together. This church selfie in Acts 2 is written completely in the together. It's plural every bit of it. There's no individualistic spirituality talked about here. It's how we live life in Jesus together. And that's no surprise because Jesus had prayed that in John chapter 17, as, as Doug Bunn preached on some weeks ago, Jesus' great high priestly prayer he prays to the Father that all that follow him, all his disciples, would share life together so much that they would be one, even as Jesus and the Father were one. That was Jesus' prayer. It's being answered in Acts chapter 2. Fourth, notice that this church was devoted to one more thing. It's called in, in chapter 2, verse 42, the prayers. Again, a definite article, the prayers, not just prayer, they were devoted to the prayers, which may be indicating what follows later in this passage, that day by day they were attending the temple together and they were praising God and having favor with all the people. So what were they doing? These Jewish believers in Jesus were attending the temple because they were still Jewish. They hadn't given up on the temple and they hadn't given up on the daily worship and praying that went on at the temple. So they would continue to meet together day by day in the temple, but they would come together there as followers of Christ and they would commit themselves to the prayers. They didn't call themselves Christians yet. That would come later. They were still Jews who knew Jesus as Messiah. They still had allegiance to being Jewish, but that would change in time as well. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit and their prayers were indwelt in a new way. They devoted themselves to praying together, but as they did so, they worshiped and they sang together. 
You know, we've been praying together as a chapel on Friday mornings between 8.15 and 8.45, whoever can come. And we've been doing that all year. And then at nine o'clock, there's another prayer time that happens in the prayer room just down the hall this way. It's a smaller gathering, but open to anyone who can come on a Friday morning just to pray, just to be together. Don't have to pray out loud. You can pray silently. If you'd like to be a part of the prayers at the chapel, that's a couple ways you can do it. So Luke has shown us in a selfie of the church, Acts chapter 2, what it looked like to be the church, the New Testament church. The definite purpose and plan of God through Christ to develop his people. We can ask this question, what happens to a community that's devoted to those things? Devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. Well, when they love scripture and want to understand it, when they love the fellowship and share life together in a meaningful way, when they love to meet together to, to eat the Lord's Supper and then to just to be together as follow, fellow believers, and they love prayer, apparently God showers them with blessing. Because the end of this passage says that day by day, God, had, God added to their number those who were being saved. But the key to this probably isn't what they did. There's another key, I think, in this passage that helps us understand the, the significance of this early church selfie. It's verse 43. It says this, and awe came upon every soul. We have to ask, what kind of awe is that? Because it says there that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. But they weren't in awe of the apostles, I don't think. Now, they could have been. I mean, someone does a miracle and God works through them. You think, well, that's pretty awesome. But the awe they experienced, I think, was the awe that you experience when you see what God is doing. Their awe was a reverent respect and wonder at the God that they worshiped. God has come in Jesus Christ. He has saved us from our sins. He has rescued us and given us new life. And their lives never were the same again. So they lived in awe. And I think that's the key to every day, how they live their lives. And they lived life together in unity. But Acts 2 is truly a snapshot of a moment in time. It didn't stay that way for long. We know that it wouldn't be long before the church in Jerusalem came under persecution. They literally had to scatter. They had to leave the city. They left and went everywhere. And as they went, they preached and taught and shared and lived the gospel of Jesus Christ. As one put it, the result of this movement in Acts chapter 2, the unity they experienced, what they shared together, what they did with it, spoken by Erasmus of Rotterdam 500 years ago, the mustard seed was slowly emerging, soon to spread its branches over the whole world. And so fueled all the way by an awe-filled understanding of Jesus and devotion to being like him and to being in love with his people and living together that way, amazing things were happening. So let me ask you, to what are you so devoted in your life? Are you devoted to the four things that the earliest Christians were devoted to? Or to put it in a broader way, a plural way, if we were to take a church selfie today, what would we see? What would it look like? Would it show what we're experiencing? 
Would it show that we too are living in awe of a God of wonder who does amazing things? Would it show that too we are committed to one another in significant ways? Would it show that what's most important to us and where we get our marching orders is the word of God and the sacraments like the, the Lord's Supper? Would that, is that what our church selfie would show? May it be so as we live our life together in this chapel, in this church. May Christ lead us so that we would be like the words of Charles Wesley's hymn, gloriously lost in wonder, love, and praise. May those who are serving communion please come forward to help.